0: Well, it seems like a decade or so since I saw you guys. Um, good to be back. Uh, if you have a Bible, would you go ahead and open it up to Luke, cha- Luke, John. Yeah, Gary, I'm not changing the rules on this. Uh, John chapter 1, and uh, I, I'm, I'm glad to be back. Um, I'm grateful for everyone who spoke while I was not here Um, I get the chance to listen online, so that's really cool. I got to hear Derek, and that sounded great, and then Peter was uh, speaking about mission, and then Gary just did a great job introducing the Gospel of John, and he has forgotten more about the Gospel of John than I will ever know. So um, I'm always happy to answer your questions, but I may wind up referring you to him if you get too complicated. Uh, As I've been thinking about this morning's passage, and we get to dive now into a more focused treatment of the gospel, and uh, we're, we're, we're ju- jumping into this section that, as Craig mentioned, is one of the most lofty in all of scripture. Uh, it, it unpacks a lot of different things. There's no way we can unpack everything fully, but we're gonna try to highlight a few key things as we go through and, and really grab hold of what John wants us to say. And as I was thinking about that, the thing that came to my mind was football, Football season, of course, as you know, the national championship game for college was this last week, and the Super Bowl's coming up, and um, it's interesting to me that this year in particular, uh, the Super Bowl is part of the conversation, but there's also conversation about somebody that's been completely eliminated from contention, and yet a major focus of the sportscasters, and that's Tom Brady, um, who is either the greatest superhero of all time or the ultimate arch-villain depending on your view. I read somebody who said, well, that's natural. Nobody wants an arch villain that is not seemingly invincible, right? Darth Vader wouldn't be very impressive in a Hawaiian shirt with a squeaky voice. Don't don't (laughs) underestimate the dark side of the force, you know. So, they got to be like, you know. So, if you're a Brady hater, it's because he is so amazingly good. And if you're a Brady lover, it's because he's so amazingly good. And the question right now is in 20 years of career, it's the first time he's a free agent, what's going to happen, right? Um, He has won more games than anyone else in the history of football. He has. won 17. In the 20 years, he's been the quarterback. 17 AFC Eastern Conference Championships, including the last 11 in a row. He's been to nine Super Bowl, won six of them. He's been the Super Bowl MVP four times. He's been the league MVP three times, on and on. He's got 54 records. And other than people who just respond from their gut, anyone that looks at data, all the sportscasters, he's the the greatest of all time. And now he's on the market. And Part of what elevates that whole conversation is the irony, this guy was picked 199th, and he will never let the rest of the world forget that, right? There are 32 teams in the NFL, and 31 teams said, eh, no, we don't think so. And they said it again and again and again. It was like sixth round draft pick before somebody finally said, oh, we'll give you a shot. And everything changed right? And, and now if you saw his combine, or if you look at his picture from the combine, which you can see, he looks kind of like a doughy Pillsbury dough, it's like, why would not anyone pick him, right? He hasn't done anything yet. In retrospect, you look at his resume and go, what kind of idiot would pass on the greatest player of all time? And yet everyone did, because they didn't see it. And it's this epic fail. And those kinds of stories Uh, pop up every once in a while and depending on your generation you will remember different ones like Fred Astaire who was the probably most influential dancer of all time and AFI has him listed as the fifth most influential actor of all time. His initial screen test with MGM the words were very short. Uh, Can't act, can't sing, slightly bald, can dance a little and they passed on him and RKO got one of the most fruitful and profitable actors of all time. And whoever was at MGM, I wondered if they stayed at MGM, um, man, what a faceplant! right? Or, or more to our era, um, J.K. Rowling, 12 different publishing houses passed until finally somebody said, yeah, we'll take a chance on this Harry Potter thing. She sold 500 million books. She's the first author to become a billionaire. Her film franchise, the Harry Potter franchise is extraordinary. It's the biggest selling series of books of all time. The film series is the third biggest selling of all time and when you consider number one is Marvel with like a million movies and Star Wars, that's not too bad. A franchise in 2016 was worth like $25 billion and there were 12 different publishers that said we don't think you have what it takes. Oops. Sometimes it's, it's actually more painful than that. Um, there was a, a general who was a World War I hero, kind of got the air war dimension of modern warfare really pushed it forward. His name was Billy Mitchell, he had one star on his shoulder when he got into trouble, so he was a brigadier general, and that's a high-ranking officer unless you're talking to other generals, in which case you're at the bottom of the totem pole, and he mouthed off, and he said basically, our army and navy have completely uh, and egregiously neglected national defense. This is, this is a travesty, and they court-martialed him for that. insubordination. you have the choice. You can be on inactive duty without pay for five years, or you can hit the pavement. He said, I'm out of here. And he left. And uh, it wasn't terribly long after that, he died of a heart condition. And the thing that makes his story so famous even today is that he predicted how World War II would start for the United States. And when I mean predicted, I mean exactly predicted. He was, paying particular attention to things in the Pacific and he was watching the Japanese government of the time become increasingly imperialistic and he said, they're gonna pick a fight. They're gonna draw us into a war and they're gonna start it with an air assault and it's gonna happen on a Sunday morning. At 7.30 in the morning, they're gonna bomb Pearl Harbor and by 10.40 that morning, they're gonna bomb Clark Field in the Philippines. He was dismissed as a crackpot December 7th, 1941, Sunday morning at 7.55 a.m. He missed it by 25 minutes, oops. Pearl Harbor was under attack and within a few hours, Clark Field in the Philippines was under attack. He got it exactly right. And he was drummed out of the army. Oops. Sometimes you get a redo, right? The U.S. Congress, even though he had died after World War II, voted him the Medal of Honor kind of a retraction. Um, Sometimes, even if you have a chance, you you just kind of move on and justify the stupidity you had. I I had a guy, I think I've told you this, he worked in the same building I worked in, he was a talent agent, and um, he was the first talent agent for Eddie and Alex Van Halen and their friends, and um, he dumped them. Van Halen has sold 80 million albums, is in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and pretty much everyone associated with the band is worth about hundred million dollars. And he dumped them. And they were, this was the 80s when I knew him when they were super hot. And I asked him, what do you think? He said, ah, oh, they were arrogant. I didn't want to be around them as he drove off in his Honda to his apartment. I'm thinking, well, I don't know, maybe that's really true. Maybe you're just justifying this. But here's the deal. All of those things we look at in retrospect and go, you know, it doesn't matter that Tom Brady looks like the Pillsbury Doughboy, take him. Billy Mitchell may be a little bit obnoxious, listen to him. Fred Astaire actually can dance, and apparently at least enough people like his acting that he's gonna make it number five on AFI's top five, uh, you know, all-time list. Listen to him, and J.K. Rowling maybe actually can write. It's always easier to see those things in retrospect but none of the people had done anything. Oh, Billy Mitchell was a war hero, but he was an arrogant one. They really hadn't done what they're known for on the front end. It makes sense that someone might pass. Hindsight's 2020. What if their resume was already written? They show up on the scene, and they've already accomplished all these things. How many people would pass on them then? This morning, you should have your Bible open, I hope, to John chapter one, because that's exactly what we find. John chapter one, verses one through 18, are Jesus' resume. The son of God's resume, the job is savior of the world, and here's my resume. By the way, I've included a letter of recommendation from the last and greatest prophet of all time. Do I get the job? Or not. And this passage actually pivots on the phrase in John 1, 12 that says, he gave them the right to become children of God. There's this, there's this choice that's stitched into the middle of it. In fact, this is really important for us to lay hold of. There are so many lofty and wonderful and amazing theological truths about God, some of which blow our minds. Literally, we can't get our minds around them. And we need to wrestle with them and we need to embrace them, but they always are to lead to some sort of profound life change. And so, this resume of Jesus, this resume of God the Son, who is born into this world as Jesus, is profound. But at the center of it, it's a choice how are you going to respond? When he shows up on the scene, the greatness has already happened, and people still reject but some don't. So if you want to follow along, let's look in verse one. It says, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. It's not identified him yet. This is just the word, which from its Old Testament context, we know is the fullest self-expression, powerful working self-revelation of God. Now that's taken human form as God himself has stepped into flesh. And that'll be revealed as we go down through it. But this is part of the resume. Who is this guy Jesus? He's the word who was there in the very beginning. He is the one who was with God. He is the one who was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. Not like he's living like us. Like he's the source of life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness does not overcome it. How's that for a resume? Well, let's look at the letter of recommendation. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness to the light. John saying, pick him. Why would I listen to John? Because he is the last and greatest of all the prophets. Pretty good letter of recommendation. Back to the resume. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. And here's the centerpiece. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. How's that for a resume? Back to the letter of recommendation. By the way, John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he, comes, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Now back to the resume. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So here's the son who enters the world already having accomplished and been and done things that are mind-blowing and staggering, and he shows up on the scene, and John said there's two responses. The people who are most Positioned to get it and respond actually reject. But some of them and a whole bunch of other people, all different colors of skin, all different languages, all different kinds of food, all different kinds of cultures from all over the planet because he's coming for the job of savior of the world. People from all over the place get it. They respond and he gives them the authority, he gives them the right, the privilege of becoming children of God not just created by God, not just God is our Father in some remote, general way, we're all under God and have some sort of relationship with him because he made us, but a personal, daily, life-changing, this is my Papa who's guarding me and guiding me and providing for me and accepts me and will never abandon me and loves me and I always belong and I'm always secure because of him kind of relationship. That's what Jesus comes to do. Some people get it and respond rightly. Some people don't. And that's the tragedy. I want to unpack some of the details of the resume that will help us to maybe see Jesus afresh. But before I do that, I want to back up. I want to catch what John is focusing us on so that we get the full weight. This whole passage is soaked in language that says start at the beginning. Right? In fact, the first three words of the book of John are also the first three words of the whole Bible, in the beginning. Because John is saying, hey, pay attention, this connects to the very start of the story. In the beginning was the word in John, in the beginning God said in Genesis. Right? He was existing from the very beginning, he was there, He's the word, he created everything. In the beginning, God created everything. And there's this moment where it says, let there be light. And Jesus comes into the world as the true light. And then Genesis chapter two, which kind of says, okay, one, I've summarized everything. Let me back up, slow it down, and expand on the creation of people. And there's this pivotal moment in Genesis two where God breathes into this lump of clay life. Jesus is life. He's life, he's light, he created everything, he's the word from the beginning. John says, hello, this is the answer that has been hanging over all of human history to understand Jesus, you have to understand the beginning. You know, as a church, we have a mission that tries, that we try to say this is gonna drive everything about us and the mission is, is pretty simple and it's rooted in these two realities. John one, Genesis one and two and following, right? Our mission is to join with Jesus in offering our neighbors and the world a better story and a better family based in his redemptive love, right? There really are only two stories in all of human history. John 1 pivots on that, and Genesis shows us that. There's a story, and the story always centers on who is God. One story is I am God, and that one always ends poorly. Because I'm not. And it has different details. Some people are more religious, some people are less, some people have a bigger desire for God in their life, some people have less, some people do better things, some people do worse things, but at the end of the day, I'm still building my life simply about me, I'm my own God, that always fails. The other story is God is God, and I will order my life that way. And that's what John 1's about. Who's going to be God? The savior of the world has come, what will you do? And as Genesis unfolds after Adam and Eve's sin, the early chapters are just like a stone skipping across the surface of a lake, just hitting the high points of history, just giving us a few stories. And those stories are set up as parallels, contrasts. Which story are you going to live by? I'm God, God's God. And that's 1 through 11. That's each story comes in pairs just like that. And one of the ones I just wanna point you to because I think it'll help us with this morning's understanding of John is probably the most obscure. Let me read it to you because it's pretty significant. Chapters four and five of Genesis are these long lists of family, right? So-and-so had so-and-so who had so-and-so who had so-and-so. In chapter four we have a family line that is anchored by somebody who says I'm God Um, I don't have a heart to worship God. I'll just go through the motions. My brother worshiped God. I killed him. Now I'm bitter at God because he's exiled me. I'm going to go do my own thing. And then it traces those who flow. And number seven is this guy named Lamech who marries two wives and has three sons. Jabal, who is the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal, He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. And then they have a half-brother, Tubal-Cain, who is the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. So here's Lamech's family. He's got these three amazing sons. One is advancing animal husbandry and building an economy. That's what God wants. That's a good thing. The problem isn't there. The problem is who's God? What's at the center of the story? Whose kingdom is the economy attached to. He's got a brother who's an artist, playing music, developing beauty in the world. That's a God-honoring thing, too. The problem is, God's not God in their universe. They've got a half-brother who's like this metallurgist. He introduces engineering. He's advancing culture and technology. That's a great thing, too. But God's not God in their world, and Lamech, Dad is the perfect example. Here's what it says about him. He came home one day and said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me and a young man for striking me. If Cain is revenge sevenfold, then Lamech is 77-fold. When Cain was cursed by God, he said, I can't handle it, and God said, I'll protect you. No one can touch you. Lamech says, hey, Cain was a bad guy. I'm a good guy, right? This guy crossed me. He violated the laws of Lamech kingdom, so I executed him, killed him. What's wrong with that? In fact, everything's right about that. He's he's proud of this. He's justifying his actions, and he's calling God as his partner in this thing, and then what's worse well, I guess that's the worst thing, but what's more, he sets it to music. He comes home, and it's a poem, and he's teaching his, his wives this song. Here's the story of Lamech and his kingdom, how I murdered this guy, cause I didn't like him, and God's really good with that. I don't know what the music sounded like. I hope it was better than that. <laughs> he did have a musical son, so maybe the son set it to something, I don't know. But that's the picture of so much of humanity. There's a lot of good things building the world that we live in, making it a better place, growing the economy, doing the engineering, doing the art, all the beauty, all of the dreams, all the passions, all of the things that we pursue. And those are good. But the question is, what kingdom does it attach to? And Lamech, it was the kingdom of Lamech. Chapter five is the other genealogy that's rooted in a family that is calling on the name of the Lord, just as broken, just as sinful, but their heart orientation has shifted. And we go down seven names. That's not an accident. Seven names in both genealogies were intended to do the math and figure this out. And number seven is a guy named Enoch. And when he had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. Here's the other story. We only have two. You can do the music thing, you can do the metallurgy thing. I mean, there's a lot of different details, but there's only two stories. The story is I'm God or God's God. And in Enoch's case, he walked with God. We don't even understand all that that means, but somehow in that process, he's drawn closer and closer to God, and God says, hey, come home with me. right, we're done. You don't have to do anything more here. Just come on home. And takes him to heaven. That's what Genesis lays out. There's these two options for life. The rest is details. Which are you going to be? There's this choice you have to make, one side or the other, there's only two. Now there's one other piece that's really critical from Genesis that helps us understand how John fills this out. Because the reality is all of us are so broken internally and so sinful ourselves, so bent away from God that even as we try to orient ourselves we will never fully do that. Even as we try to trust him, we will never fully do that, and we need God to do something for us. And that's why in that same section of scripture, God says, Genesis 3.15, I'm gonna send a human into this world to fix it. Okay, John has said keep that story in mind As you read Jesus, in the beginning, the eternal son did these things, and he came in fulfillment of that. And there's these two responses. Which story will drive your life? And the details, engineer or artist, those are all good and fine. The question is, which kingdom are they a part of? What centers, what anchors, and what drives everything? And Jesus comes into the world, and it's amazing. Those who are best situated to see it and respond utterly fail. A worse face plant than we can imagine at any other time in history. The absolute worst. He comes resume done. It's not the doughy kid from Michigan that you're like, I don't know. Or this unknown author from somewhere in England that's, ah, maybe the balding guy that you don't think sings very well. It's the eternal son who's already done all of these things. Here he is, what are we gonna do? John 1 now unpacks the picture of Jesus. And there's a lot of details, but I wanna just kind of capture it in three simple um, kind of controlling ideas that'll help us grab all of the stuff, at least at some level. There's three things that uh, that John establishes for Jesus, Here's his resume, he's unique. He's utterly unique. Right, he's he's human just like me, and yet he's nothing like me. I need to understand that. Secondly, he's the creator of everything. He's the creator of everything. And thirdly, he's the answer. He's the answer. Those are the three things that John lays out for us, and he uses a variety of terms to drive that home, and then he says, okay now, which story is going to drive your life? Which kingdom is going to be the center of things? Jesus has come to be the savior of the world and that starts with being the savior of you. Will you surrender and trust or will you reject and suffer the consequences? So let's take a look at this, the uniqueness. First off, it says he, in the beginning, was the word. Was is an important word um, because it's not the same was as the was that shows up in Verse six. I know that's a little hard to follow, but look, at verse six, there was a man sent from God. That was is not the same was as the Jesus was, or the, the son, the eternal son. When it says in the beginning was the word, that word implies eternality. The word that we have in verse six is intentionally distinct. John came into being. Jesus was, at the very beginning, he was. He's unique, he's different. He's not just eternal, he was with God, personally present with the Father. That sets him apart. Oh, and also, he was God. And then down at the end, when he resumes the resume, No one has seen God except God, Jesus, who was at the Father's side, and that's actually more like in his lap. It's the closest you can actually be. This connection between the Father and the eternal Son, who's now born into the world as Jesus, is unique. He is God, he was with God, he knows God like nobody else, he's eternal, he's he's distinct, right? And there's things about that that are profound and difficult to understand and ultimately blow our minds and nobody's ever fully understood it. He is, he is God, he was with God, right? How does that work? He's fully divine and yet he's not the father. There's a, a teaching that we have from ancient times called Trinity, right, triune God. There's only one God, but God is Father, Son, and Spirit, three persons, and the father is not the son and the father is not the spirit and the son is not the spirit and the spirit is not the son. They're different. But there's only one God. They're together. And, and it's like, oh, what does that even mean? And Uche promised he'd stay after and answer every question you have. <laughs> it's always good to have a professor of theology in the room. And the answer is, ah. Oh, I don't know. I don't know how that works, but it's true. God, Jesus, the Son, this is unique. He's unlike anybody else. He actually is God, even though he is distinct from the Father, right? He can't sit in the Father's lap and be the Father, and we need, to, we need to embrace that. We need to understand there's one God and yet he's three persons and it's not like three different successive expressions. It's not like sometimes he's the father and sometimes he's the son and sometimes he's the spirit because otherwise we have the father sitting down and then Jesus sitting in his lap. and It's like, that doesn't work. It's at the same time father, son, and spirit and yet the father's not the son. The son's not the father. Whoa, I don't know how to, I don't know how to embrace that. John takes us into very deep territory, and there are things that we will never fully understand, although it's actually easier to embrace that today because physicists talk that kind of language all the time. And once upon a time, it thought it was just kind of, well, we're not sure, it's kind of probably this, probably that, and until you, until you lock it down, it's not clear, is Schrodinger's cat dead, or is it alive, uh, we don't know. And now the evidence is mounting that if in, in, in the scenario that I'm alluding to, if you understand it, it's like. He's dead and alive at the same time, actually. There is one electron and it's here and it's there at the same time. It's going left and it's going right at the same time, and there's only one electron. How does that work? I have no idea. No physicist has any idea how that works, and no theologian has any idea how the the, the Trinity works, but it's real. And John is saying, hey, just because he shows up in blue jeans and a t shirt, if he were coming today, don't be mistaken. Right, He's just like you and me and he's nothing like you and me. He's the eternal God in human flesh and he's come for you. It's a staggering, staggering thought that God would come into this world for me and I may not, I may not understand it all but I need to embrace it. it Maybe may a popular couple of illustrations it may at least help get the point. John's point, if it were in a movie, the, the hero would be going along and at some point, someone would look at him, squint the eye and say, you're not from around here, are you, son? A little bit more to you than meets the eye. Thor falls out of the sky and everyone's like, who's this really muscular guy that doesn't seem to fit in with our culture? And by the end, they're hanging mouth open going, oh, Right? Chuck Norris, you ever watch any Chuck Norris movie or show or whatever, it's always gonna have the same thing. He's gonna go, at some point he's gonna go into a bar room filled with angry bikers. And there's little Chuck Norris, he's not a very big guy, and he's just And there's like 18 angry, tattooed, massive, muscular guys, and you know the meanest one's got a pool cue in his hand, he's about to break it in half and try to stick it through Norris, and you're going, don't do it, don't do it. There's 18 to one, don't do it, you don't understand. But of course, you watched it because you wanted to see that. So at the same time, you're kind of conflicted. Do it, do it, do it, do it. And you know it's gonna be the same. At the end of the scene, there's gonna be 18 guys lying on the ground moaning and he's gonna pick up his hat, dust it off and walk out the room going, (whistles) don't be fooled. In a, in, a, in a way that is so exceedingly beyond words, John is saying, don't be fooled. Yes, fully human, walking in skin just like you and me. This is the second person of the Trinity. We don't even understand that, and here he is. He's eternal, he's created us all. And in fact, that's really helpful The creator of all is the second thing he gets across because so many of these deep doctrines are abstract. They're true and they need to be embraced and they can drive our worship by saying, God is so beyond me, I I can't even understand him. But at some point, I need to get something about him and he says, let me move to something you can get your hands on, literally, stuff. Second thing on the uh, resume here for the eternal son entered the world as Jesus is this. All things verse three, were made through him, and without him was not anything that that was made. In other words, I'm not just making a broad generalization. He did everything. It's like, no, he literally did everything. All things were made by him. If that's not clear, let me flip it over. Nothing that has been made came into existence apart from him. It's all his. He made quasars, he made quarks, and he made koala bears, He made plate tectonics that give us such an exciting ride and cause really expensive insurance bills and he made plate full of food that we eat every day. He made all of that stuff. Everything is made by him. The dirt that we stand on this earth, he made that. Maybe standing there in blue jeans and a t-shirt, he made it. Right? And the air that I'm breathing, he made that. And the nose through which I'm breathing, he made that. And the little hairs that are in there to keep the dirt that I'm standing on from getting into, you can fill out the rest of that scenario. He made all of that stuff. He thought of it and he executed it and there it is, he created it. When I see something beautiful, He not only created that, he created light, he created color, he created the neural system and the the electricity that runs that, and so that the light from a, a bright red rose hits my eye, the photons reflecting off of that go in through my eye, they hit my optic nerve, they're turned into an electrical signal, they go into my brain and fire off basically a computer sequence, and then there's something even more that happens because it's not just I see a rose, there's a response, there's, there's an experience of a rose that is beyond the physicality. And that's when I go, oh. He created my mind, which nobody knows what that is. Somehow it connects with me and my brain and who knows what that is and my conscious. He created all that stuff. Everything he created, nothing was made that he didn't make, all of it is his And he's standing right here. He's entered this world to be known and he's asking for the job of savior. And his resume is pretty impressive. What am I gonna do with that? Third thing is he's the answer. (laughs) I remember I heard Evie Hill who is a well-known pastor 20, 30 years ago, and boisterous. And he had a church that was really boisterous. And he went in, he was telling them about this sermon and the meeting I was at, and he went in, and he, he, he started the sermon by saying, Jesus is the answer. And everyone goes, amen. And he just lets that sit there for a minute. He said, I don't think you heard me. I said, Jesus is the answer. And they go, amen. I said, you aren't listening, Jesus is the answer, amen, they're on their feet, they're shouting, they're applauding, and he lets that all die down, and then he looks at him. he says, so what's the question? It's like, we say these things, what do they actually mean? John's saying, here's what it means, here's the answer. The answer to what? The answer to the riddle of life, the answer to the meaning of life, the answer to everything, the answer to the problems, every problem I've created, my greatest need, they're all there, he's the answer. Not some vague, oh, it's Jesus. It's like, no, in very concrete ways. And John begins to unpack at least a few of them. He says, Jesus is full of light and life. That's really good news to a world that is dark and dying. Right? In a world that's defined by toil and tyranny and terminal illness, he's light and life and the darkness does not win. He's the one who shows me the way. John's gonna use light multiple ways and darkness multiple ways and part of it is even just understanding and seeing rightly. Religions, philosophies, folk wisdom, a lot of things try to say, how do I gain enlightenment, whatever, whatever label you put on it? And here's the answer, Jesus. He enlightens us. He shines his light, and then we have to respond. Here's the answer. He brings life and light to a world that's really messed up. It really is. And so many things are so wrong. And sometimes they wear on us. We were at a at a family gathering after Christmas, and kind of going through, here's some, here's some real significant cultural markers right now, and the further we went into them, and, and trying to do that to stay connected to what, what's going on, the further we went into them, the, the more frustrated I found myself being, and I finally asked my family to pray for me. Because I find our culture, on the left and on the right, young and old, to be insipid, vacuous, empty and going after all the wrong things or going after things that have some value but still never switching kingdoms. And there's this sense I found rising up in me of just actually disdain. It's like my whole job is to try to help myself and other people stay connected with the word of God in a way that we can engage. We don't trip into that and we help the rest of the world. We're here to help bring light. And I just said, please pray for me because I can't be much of a missionary if I'm wrestling with my own heart of disdain and who am I to judge? But this stuff's a mess. Jesus is the answer. He's actually got light and life. The last week I had somebody, dear, die. Long battle with cancer. It's terrible. A few days before he died, trusted Christ. That's life. He's with Jesus now. That's amazing. My only regret is I wish he'd have known Jesus his whole life because eternal life doesn't just start when I pass from this world, it's actually real now. And I still struggle, and I still wrestle, and I'm still in a broken world, but there's this presence and power and active dimension of God relationally day by day that Jesus is bringing life. And how much better it is to live that. John says, Jesus, he's got the light, he's got the life. In fact, he is the light, he is life he 's full of grace and truth, and he 's giving us grace upon grace, All right It even says Moses brought certain things. And, and he's not picking on Moses because God sent Moses, but he's saying that's not sufficient. There's more to be completed, and Jesus completes it, and he just overwhelms us with grace. Do you need grace? I need grace. There are times that I just find myself, this thing will pop into my head, something I've done or said or didn't do or said, and I just want to smack myself. Sometimes I think I should probably bruise my forehead. It's like, stupid. Ah, ah. You, you ever have that experience? Like I cannot believe how, what an idiot I am, what I've done. I can't, yeah. And, and and I can fall into some sort of self-recrimination and actually treat myself like an idiot, but God's not gonna do that. That's where grace comes in, and like I can say, well, wait, wait, wait. That was wrong. But thank you, God. You meet me in grace. I'm not perfect, you are perfecting me, and I don't even cooperate very well with you often, and yet you still meet me in grace. Grace upon grace upon grace. He's full of grace and truth. That's the answer. He tabernacled among us. The word was made flesh and tabernacled among us. The presence of God right with us in a way the temple and tabernacle never brought. And the one who sits in the Father's lap is now revealing him, and he's giving me the right to be a child in intimate relationship. That's the answer. Jesus is the answer. And John says, this is who Jesus is, And if the resumes weren't enough, then there's the greatest and last prophet who's saying, this is it, listen to him, do what he says, follow him. And some people miss it completely, willfully even. But for those who do respond, who surrender, who trust, everything changes. Some of you may be here, and you have kind of this general connection with God, everyone does, he's our creator but there's nothing really personal or vibrant or alive. You spend your life wrestling and clamoring and trying to get ahead. You're living essentially the same story but it's in the wrong kingdom and it's not going anywhere. And you're filled with loneliness, you're filled with heartache, you're filled with a sense of I don't belong and nobody cares. We all wrestle with that at some point but it's true only for those who've rejected Christ. And Jesus said, I'm here to change that. I want to embrace you. I will give you the right to be the personal child of the Father, the one who created the universe. You can know him right now and personally. And if that's where you sit this morning, I'd love to talk to you after the service or sometime this next week and explore how the answer might apply in your life because Jesus wants to change everything. Many of us I know have responded in faith, but it's amazing how easy the clutter fills our lives and how easy it is to miss Jesus, right? The central reality is this trusting Christ, but it starts in treasuring Christ. Look at all these things that are true about him. Let those things sink in and respond. Am I treasuring Jesus? I uh, looked up something on YouTube a while back for uh, The Voice, because I like that. And um, the cookies on the website then grabbed me, and they'll send me little things. And this week, they sent me, hey, you might like this. And I clicked on it and said, I wonder what that's gonna be. You know, it's The Voice from around the world. And there were two blind auditions that really captured me and said, I think that's in a small way what response to Jesus is supposed to look like. The first one was this guy, The Voice of Holland. And he comes onto the stage, and all of the judges have their backs to whoever's gonna sing, and that's on purpose, because they're just supposed to respond to the moment and not be cluttered by anything else. And he starts singing Redemption Song, a song by Bob Marley that's this powerful story about how change should happen in a world filled with racism and hatred, how redemption starts by how we think. It's a powerful song. And they all turn around real quickly because the guy singing it is doing an amazing job. And they turn around and they see he's of African descent. The Dutch were the first colonizers of South Africa where apartheid was so big. And they were, had a major contributing role in that. And you can see that now what hit them because of the beauty is hitting them in a much deeper and more poignant way. And, And and the room is electric. People are weeping, and they're standing, and they're cheering, and then they're falling silent, and then they're listening, and then they're repeating, because what's happening in front of them is just grabbing them, and they have to respond. And right near the end, there's this particularly poignant and quiet moment. Everything falls silent, and he's singing. And then from the audience in the back, you hear somebody just go, wow, wow you know, he couldn't help himself. It just sunk, through. wow. John says, look, here's Jesus. Here's God who's entered the world. Treasure him. Do you understand what that is? When was the last time I just had to go, wow. Let that sink in. I watched a couple more and then there was one from Ukraine. And this woman came on with a instrument i didn't recognize ukrainian folk instrument i'm sure started singing in ukrainian russian i can't tell the difference and she was singing obviously a folk song and as she's singing you see everyone's countenance change all four judges start weeping they just all start weeping the men and the women and then one by one they stand to their feet back to her they're not supposed to look they just stand in utter silence, and then the, the camera pans and the entire audience, hundreds of people just silently stand. There are no words. There is nothing to do but stand in awestruck silence because what she's singing, I later looked up the folk song, and it's this powerful, it's this powerful thing that hits the Ukrainian heart about suffering and loss and war, and it just moved them. In fact, she almost didn't get a chair turn because nobody wanted to ruin the moment. What was happening was far more important than the contest right at the very end. One of the judges, as the final notes are finally fading, hits the chair so it turns around. But for that whole song, the whole room was utterly silent because what was happening was transcendent. John says, God entered the world. If you trust him, you need to treasure him. We're gonna sing. We're gonna sing songs about what we believe. These aren't just words. When was the last time I had this wow moment? I just can't help myself but express exuberance. Or when was the last moment I was, I, actually, it, we have words for this. It took my breath away. You could hear a pin drop, it was so silent. When was the last time I really connected with Jesus so that that was true? Lord, thank you, thank you, wow. You're so amazing, and we are so pedestrian sometimes in how we approach you. Please, thank you for your grace. Please grow us. May we know and love you profoundly because you are so worthy. pray this in Jesus' name, amen.